Welcome back to another episode of Top Self. I'm your host, Shannon Bryant. I have the couples therapist of all couples therapists, right? I have Bruce Chalmer with me today, and he's going to provide us some very interesting wisdom that he has learned through his years of couples therapy and outside of couples therapy. You also have a podcast of your own that you do with your wife called Couples Therapy in Seven Words. I was just on it recently. Great podcast. So thank you for doing that and welcome, Bruce. Well, thank you. It's delightful to be here. It was great to have you on our show and I'm happy to return the favor. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to have you here. I'm going to go right out of the gate though, because I know that there are many couples where there might be one partner or the other that want to go to couples therapy, but the other is hesitant. So Mm -hmm. before we talk about changes that we can make in couples therapy, how do we get our partner to go if they don't want to go? You know, it's funny you asked me that question. I actually have a video. It is oriented toward a particular gender, which is the usual one. It's how do you get your reluctant guy to go to therapy? (laughs) The basic idea there, and this would apply in either gender, either, either way you go, whatever gender, um, The basic idea is you have to understand that if somebody is reluctant to go to therapy, they almost certainly have very good reason for it. Uh, Typically, it's fear. And, you know, the the reason I addressed it somewhat whimsically, but I but I meant it seriously. The reason I addressed it in the when I was talking about guys is we as men, you know, I'm, I'm a cisgendered heterosexual guy, and we tend not to reveal, especially to our women partners, that we're terrified of something. But typically, the reason a guy is resisting, you know, it's it's usually not always, but usually a woman who wants to do it, usually a man who doesn't. Yeah. And because, yeah. you know, guys don't like to talk about stuff. It's terrifying. You know, if a woman approaches a guy and says, honey, we need to talk. You know, those are terrifying words to a guy. <laughs> but we don't say we're terrified. We will get, uh, you know, different ways. We'll get all logical. We'll say, well, no, really, this is your problem. Uh, you know, you, you should work that out because I'm not unhappy. You are. So you should go. Or we will get angry or we'll, or we'll stonewall or we'll do all kinds of things that mm. aren't terribly helpful about that. And what I advise, again, usually the woman in that situation, is to understand why he's resisting. You have to understand that, again, he has a, probably a pretty valid basis for it. He's terrified. He won't tell you that he's terrified, but he's terrified. And the reason he's terrified is that if you go to couples therapy, he is convinced, or certainly the possibility is there, that the therapist will take your side, not his, mm-hmm. because therapy is, even though even those of us who are male therapists, you know, the, the assumption is, well, we're talking about all this emotional stuff, so we're thinking like women, or we're, we're taking a woman's right. approach. Or um, what will happen is you will discover that, oh, really this, this uh, marriage or partnership isn't going to work, so you'll dump them. So the guy's terrified that that's what's going to happen, and he's not crazy to be terrified. And once you recognize that, and this again, broadening it from not just, uh, not just talking women to men, but in any direction, once you realize that your partner is afraid, probably for good reason, then you can actually hear each other. And that's where a partner might well say, well, you know, you're, you're actually hearing my misgivings. Maybe we've got something we can talk about here. If we can find someone who's not just going to, you know, sell us a bill of goods, but will actually listen to us, maybe we'll actually get somewhere. Right. So that, right. it's, it's, that's there's sort of the, that's a long answer to your question, but you have to understand why your partner has misgivings. Yeah. There's some underlying fear there. Yeah. And like you said, understandably so, because, well, gosh, what are they going to say and what's going to be the outcome? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so while still on that topic of, you know, starting to go to therapy or how we start to go to couples therapy, are there any questions that a couple should be asking as they're trying to find the right therapist? Mm-hmm. Or is that a thing? Because I hear a lot of times, you know, it's hard to get in or, you know, it takes a while, but... Yeah. I also, you know, it's important, right, that you connect with that therapist, both of you in that situation. Are there questions that we could be asking? You know, that is a great question. It is a it's it's, of course, a perfectly normal question to ask. Right. I have a, a I actually wrote a section on that in, in my most recent book. It's not about communication. There isn't I don't I haven't got a good answer. There aren't a good set of questions you can ask, because I think what happens, regardless of what you might ask and what you know, what the therapist might come up with in terms of a brief answer. You're not going to know until you actually work with somebody and see, does it seem to be working? Do they seem to be hearing what you're saying? Do you feel more alive based on the conversation rather than shut down? Uh, Those are things, I don't know what questions you could ask that would tease that out, except actually trying a session or, you know, or maybe several sessions, which is frustrating. You know, it's like, you'd like, it'd be nice if you could ask certain questions to sort of, you know, rule people out, but I, I don't know what they would be. Trial and error, right? Yeah. 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 Well, I, and I think it's important for people to know that if the first one doesn't work out, try another one and mm-hmm. see if that if that person clicks, but at least giving them kind of the opportunity at least. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so you kind of touched on a little bit of my next question, which we hear all the time, oh, are, we just, we need to go to couples therapy because we have bad communication. Our communication is off. You have a different opinion of what the problem might be? Yeah. You know, when, when what you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, I have my, I have my favorite way of thinking about this and I apply it, you know, and it's sort of funny because it, I don't know what the percentage is. I haven't really counted, but I'm guessing three quarters of the time when I ask people in the first session, like, you know, in effect, what's bringing them there, they're going to say, well, we need to communicate better. It's not about communication, for crying out loud, you know? Why do I say it's not about communication? Well, people think they're having trouble communicating. And the vast majority of folks out there, the vast majority of people I work with, probably aren't cognitively impaired. That could cause communication problems, but they're not cognitively impaired. They're intelligent. They can follow what's going on. They're usually not on the autistic spectrum, occasionally, Mm -hmm. but usually not. People on the spectrum occasionally do have communication problems because they might not be able to to detect the emotional tone of what someone is saying. And that's a real communication problem. You know, they usually literally speak the same language, you know, and that, that of course, if, if somebody, if two people literally do not speak the same language, well, that's a communications problem. Sure. But that's not the case with most people who say they need to communicate better. The problem isn't that they don't know how to communicate. They're communicating very effectively. The problem is what they're communicating. What they're communicating often is anger, mistrust, um, contempt, you know, a bunch of things that are not really helpful to communicate. Blame, exactly, all of the above. So when that's what they're communicating, they're still communicating it clearly. They don't need help communicating. They need help with what they're communicating. And that's not about talking about communication. That's about, well, what's going on that you're communicating that? You know, why are you communicating mistrust? Why are you communicating fear? You know, you're effectively communicating things quite accurately, but the fact that you're communicating that is what you're having trouble with in your relationship. Okay. So that might be a good starting point to what 
I was going to ask you if, because you know what my podcast is about. I've been on mm-hmm. your show. We've had some conversations. You kind of have a little idea of what goes on, um, of course, in, in the mind of someone who is jealous and in that relationship and they're feeling really insecure. Mm-hmm. And typically it is the other partner has had it. I mean, they're fed up. They're tired of one of being accused Two, this, just the same questions over and over and they're feeling, you know, their, their partner is showing them that they don't trust them, even if they haven't done anything to show that mistrust. So if there were a couple that came into your office, one of them with this kind of morbid jealousy that we've been talking about, what would maybe be a first step Mm. that you would take with that couple? Well, you know, my first disclaimer to put in there is it would depend on the couple, of course. But where where I would go in general is for people to understand where it's coming from. And that's a tricky one in the in the sort of situation you're describing where, you know, some people are sort of at their wits end. It's like, you know, she or he are, is so jealous and I, I, I'm just having a hard time putting up with it. I would want to somehow, if if they want to stay together, you know, which sometimes is a a question in a situation like that. Right. But if they want to stay together, I would, I would want to invite them to validate it. You know what I mean? It's like, well, okay. You know, it's something I learned from you, actually, the notion that jealousy is in fact a solution to a problem. It is, it can also be highly problematic. Obviously it could be toxic, but it can also be healthy. It can also be like, well, okay, your jealousy is indicating something. Let's, let's see if we can talk about it without freaking out so that you can get a sense of where you're coming from. And that's, that'll be the path forward. It tends not to be a path forward to say, you will go cold turkey and stop checking the phone. I'm not saying you should right. not stop checking the phone. You should stop checking the phone, but yeah. that's not the point. You know, the point is what's driving you to want to check the phone. Hey, you, I just wanted to pop in and let you know the doors to the Trust Building Bootcamp are now open. Are you tired of feeling anxious and insecure in your relationship? Do you constantly worry that your partner's cheating or they're going to leave you even when there's no evidence of betrayal? Do you feel like, oh, I just can't trust even myself sometimes? Well, that was me. And if it sounds like you, it's time to stop second guessing. And I know some of the thoughts that you have, like, is this something that anyone would be upset about? Or am I just worried about it because of my jealousy? We'll mark your calendars for Wednesday, May 29th, because that's when our Trust Building Bootcamp begins. In our weekly one-hour sessions, you'll learn how your brain is choosing unhealthy strategies to get your needs met and how to pull yourself out of those insecure habit loops. I lead every session live to give you guidance to learn to trust not only your partner, but yourself. Whether you're struggling with past traumas or simply want to strengthen the foundation of your relationship, this boot camp is for you. And believe it or not, we actually have fun. Don't let your fears hold you back from experiencing the love and security you deserve. Spaces are limited, so visit topself.com to sign up or simply click the link in the show notes to take your first step to a more trusting relationship. You won't regret it. See you there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, okay, so uh, something you said to me that's been sticking with me since I did that interview with you, you know, sometimes just the simplest of things 
can make all the difference in the way that somebody looks at something, right? And you said something that really stuck out to me that I thought, hmm, that is one of those potentially like simple statements, but change the way that someone thinks. So you said you're married to a male, I assume. And I said, yes. And you said, okay, so you're married to a heterosexual male who is then attracted to women. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes. And you said, and you would want him to be because that's how he was attracted to you, <laughs> that's right? The, that's the team you're playing for, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And and so um, even for me, who I have clients that I'm helping with, even that one kind of simple thought of thinking about it a little bit differently, like, well, what else would they do, right? What else would they be attracted to? That's that's how the two of you are together. So I just wanted to thank you for that. And I wanted to share it here as well um, in case people haven't been able to listen to your podcast to mm-hmm. hear that, because I think this is an important point that might hit home with people. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I never know, like in a situation like this or in a session, people will say, oh, you said this amazing thing. And there have been many times when people have said that, and I'm virtually certain I didn't say it. You know, they came up with it. They're giving me credit, which is very generous, but I don't deserve it. You know, in this case, yes, I do remember saying that, but it's fascinating. I never know what's really going to resonate with someone. Yeah. I want. Can I take that a little further? Because I think it's uh, there's something I, I enjoy pointing out about that. So not only is there reason to be glad if you know that your partner is attracted to the whole category that you are from. You know, that's good. Right. Right. But then there's the phenomenon that. And especially true when you're talking about sex, you know, the the notion of people being sexually alive, being able to be turned on doesn't have to immediately mean cheating. You know, it's like someone mm-hmm. could could find, oh, what a what a sexy program I just saw, you know, a story. For women, it's more often romance stories and for men, it's more often porn, you know. Right. But, but whatever it may be, something that stimulates him and then he's, but, but if he's faithful to you, he's saying, oh my God, I have this wonderful woman I can have sex with. How cool is that? You can actually perhaps be glad it has been turned on by the world that, and he can mm. take it out on you in a lovely way. You mm-hmm. can be turned on that way too. So, you know, when a couple is open to being sexually turned on by more than just each other, right. and, and I'm talking about monogamous, faithful couples, right? that can be good for a relationship, not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think in, in our minds where we live is, you know, it, it, when we struggle with it is why well, don't want that, you know, what, what does that mean mm-hmm. if they are turned on by someone else? Yeah. What does that mean? You yeah. know, d- does that mean they want that person? Does that mean that they desire other people? I'm not doing it enough, you know, so that, that, those are the stories that start coming up when, when we think about that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. And those now you're, I'm not going to mansplain to you, you being the expert on women in the conversation. Uh, that's what I hear from women, that particular one, men, men, it's not so much about, Oh, who am I competing with men? It's more about, Oh my God, she's rejecting me. You know, she yeah. won't let me in, but women, it's much more, is that right? Women, it's much more about, Oh my God, if he's looking at those pictures and I'm not, I don't look like that. There must yes. be something wrong with me. Yeah. And men, men find that just absolutely mystifying because men are just thinking, no, no, you know, look at a naked woman and it turns me on. You know, we, just, we don't think we don't think in terms of that being unfaithful or not literally having sex with anybody else. He's just getting turned on by an image because that's what happens with most men. 
And you're not doing the comparison that we're doing in our mind. I assume that that is the case, or we hope that that's the case, right? You're not doing that comparison of, oh, this naked person versus my wife. Exactly. Exactly. No. And then, of course, that is the issue, one of the issues with porn. And, you know, and I worry about it, especially with young folks these days, says the old Mm -hmm. fogey over here. What I mean, you know, I go back way before the internet. Well, you're not that old, and you go back way before the internet. You know, <laughs> the, the um, young folks where that's what they're learning sex is that can mm-hmm. be seriously problematic because yeah. there are people who get trained so that they're only turned on by porn, not by actual people, and that can wreak right. havoc on a relationship. So I'm not trying to say porn is just fine, but uh, indeed, most men I think will tell you honestly. We're not comparing. That's not what it's about. They just, you know, men as a group, you know, I was going to say heterosexual men, but I think this is true of gay men as well, find images of their favorite, you know, their favorite category sexually stimulating. Right. So it isn't, right. you know, you know, it's interesting. There's been uh, research with women. Some of it, uh, I, I live in Vermont. I'm in Florida at the moment, but I live in Vermont in general. And um, there's been research with women where they'll use a uh, plethysmograph, which is, for men, it's something that goes around the penis and just measures when the penis gets engorged. For women, it mm-hmm. goes in the vagina and measures when the vagina gets engorged. And there's mm-hmm. research with women that shows that women being shown certain images will also engorge just like men will, but it won't jive with their subjective assessment of how turned on they are. Whereas for men, those things are really well correlated. So if uh. a man's penis and a man's brain are pretty much lined up. You know, that's the joke about we have enough <laughs> blood for both the brain and the penis, but not at the same time. You know, <laughs> when the man's penis gets going. It's that's his brain at that moment. But for women, it's more complicated that women will show themselves physically like the vagina is saying, oh, better get ready for sex when the brain may be saying, oh, my God, that's horrible. And there's, yeah, and the, it was women researchers that were doing this. This wasn't like from, you know, the male gaze happening. Um, and it was fascinating. They were hypothesizing that, you know, what women are looking for in sex is quite a bit more complex than what men are looking for. Men are just looking for admission. Women are looking mm-hmm. for a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, there's good evolutionary reason. You know, men and women yeah. are the way they are for good reason. It can right. be problematic. And jealousy is a great example of that. You know, it's like. There's good reason for jealousy, but also it can get toxic if it's mm-hmm. if it's too much at the wrong time. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Well, speaking of toxic, um, you talk about death spiral for passion. Mm-hmm. What is that? How does that happen? Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a normal process. That, that sounds kind of dismal, doesn't it? It's like yeah, a normal process is a death spiral. Well, death spiral. Yeah, that sounds awful, but I'll I'll tell you what I mean by that. It it relates to the notion, one of my favorite topics is the difference between stability and intimacy. Those are both needs in a relationship. We need stability. Otherwise, everything, we're constantly freaking out and worrying about all the time, you know, our anxiety levels spiking like crazy. But we also need intimacy. And the chief skills of stability are all about keeping the anxiety level low. You know, you don't cheat. You show up when you say you're going to show up. You more or less tell the truth. You're more or less Mm -hmm. sober most of the time, you know, stuff like that. The chief skills of intimacy aren't at all about avoiding anxiety. They're actually about tolerating anxiety. And that's where that death spiral can come in, because what happens when people get together and fall in love and 
you know, make a life together and maybe have kids, which really ups the ante, stability becomes, of course, very, very important. And what happens is stability can get so important that people stop risking rocking the boat too much. So they might not want to issue a a garden variety complaint. It's like, oh, I wish you would Mm. wipe down the counter after you've, you know, used the bathroom or whatever. You know, I wish you would do X, Y, or Z that you're not doing or not do X, Y, or Z that you are doing. And you know, that's not going to be fun for your partner to hear. And if you've had some conversations that have kind of gone off the rails, then people will tend to avoid that. Well, avoiding that, it's not just about complaints. Other things that might raise anxiety is if you want to say to your partner, you know, I've been wanting to try something different in our sex life and I'm worried you're going to think I'm weird. Or say to your partner, you know, I've been thinking I'd like us to move somewhere for a year or something, and I'm worried you're going to freak out if I tell you that. You know, dreams, aspirations, hopes, whatever that might be. As people don't want to take that risk, that has the effect of shutting down intimacy. Not only sexual intimacy often, that's often a symptom of it, but intimacy more general. generally. And what I, my favorite metaphor about this is a plant, you know, a living organism a plant needs roots. That's what stability is. So it doesn't just blow over in the breezes, but it also needs intimacy. It needs, it needs to be involved with life. Intimacy is the energy for growth. Any living organism needs that. If you have a seed that gets paved over in a sidewalk and it's the germinated seed, it'll try to crack the sidewalk mm-hmm. because it won't just sit there It'll or die trying. And a right. couple is a living organism and it's going to want to have the energy for growth. That's where, you know, you think things you wouldn't have thought by yourself. If that gets shut down, somebody's going to try and crack the sidewalk. Now, usually that'll manifest. Uh, there's a lot of ways that can manifest. Some affairs are often, not only, but often a manifestation of that. Severe jealousy can be a manifestation of that, of lack of intimacy. You don't, you don't feel connected. And so you're constantly afraid of what's happening in the relationship because you're not tied in. Right. So lots of things can, you know, can manifest. You hear a lot of times where people are like, we feel like roommates and we're just kind of going with the flow and we've lost, you know, we've lost that love and feeling as they say. Yep. And that's because people are not taking that risk. They're, they're, they're putting that stability in front of the intimacy. Yeah. Often. Again, I don't want to overstate it. You know, they're, everybody's got their own stories, but often that is the case. Yeah. Um, so in many situations where the, there's a person who is extremely jealous in the relationship, they're constantly seeking that reassurance from their partner and they're wanting to get it from their partner. Like if they, if I were the jealous person and I'm upset because something happened and I'm feeling insecure and I'm feeling jealous and I'm kind of in a jealous meltdown, I'm wanting my partner to reach out their hand or come give me a hug or give me that reassurance. Mm -hmm. We know that that may not happen all the time, especially if this has been going on for quite some time and the partner is kind of over it or frustrated with it at that point. What do you recommend of how someone can make themselves going to get that reassurance, I guess, for themselves versus going to their partner? What a great question. I wish I had a formula. You know, I mean, yeah. I, th- I think people have formulas, but I don't, <laughs> I don't have a lot of faith in the formulas, you know, I, I don't know. It is, it's, of course, it's kind of a therapist cliche to say this, but I think it's true. 
you can't get that reassurance from someone else fundamentally. You know, it's really based on a very, very deep uh, acceptance of your own validity. You know, yeah. if you need reassurance of your own validity, you're never going to find it. And if you don't need it, there's evidence of it all over the place. You know what I mean? If you don't need it, it's, it's readily available to you. And if you are in doubt about your own validity, there's no amount of proof that will be good enough. So mm-hmm. that's a tough one. It's it's really a lot of internal work. I don't and and look, I don't want to pathologize the idea that it's lovely to have your partner offer you some reassurance sometimes. You know, I certainly think that's a, a lovely thing for partners to do. Don't take your, you know, don't take your partner for granted. Of course, you know, I, I always, that's another element of jealousy. You know, we may have talked about this when you were on our podcast. I don't remember, but the idea that I should worry, not, not pathologically worry, but I should recognize that my wife is a, is a catch, you know, I, that she's valuable in the market. If I want to be sort of mm-hmm. mercenary about it, <laughs> she, she's, she, she'd be a catch for some guy. I better be really nice to her. So she wants to stay with me, you know, and I hope I trust she feels similarly to me because she's very nice to me. You know, that's the idea. You want to foster that. But that isn't about insecurity. That's about recognizing, hey, that's that's about valuing your partner. So, yeah, it's great to, you know, I certainly suggest to all partners, of course, be reassuring to your partner. But the problem you're asking about, of course, is no, when you need it desperately. If yeah, when it's that, that habit yeah, of exactly. I've got to get it from them and, yeah. you know, that's the only way I'll feel better yeah. in this moment. Yeah, and that, yeah. that very thing, you know, that that's the only way I'll feel better, of course, is the problem. You have to have ways of feeling better when they can't give that to you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to call that. I mean, the word that pops on my mind is maturity, but I don't need to be condescending or something. You know, it's as we get older and mature, you hope you can provide more of that for yourself. Right, right. Well, and I think it is something that some people have to learn, right? Especially if they didn't have that growing up. I didn't have, you know, somebody who was that quiet support and knowing that I can feel safe without, you know, having to have, I wasn't constantly seeking reassurance type of thing, so. Yeah, and, you know, speaking speaking as a father, um, and I know from uh, remembering from your conversation with us that your father, you lost contact with your father pretty early, right? When you were mm-hmm. a kid. Yeah. And um, th- I think that's a special thing that fathers can give daughters. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That sense that here's a male who is all about protecting, protecting you, loving you and valuing you, not sexually. But, yeah. you know, what girls and again, you can comment from your, your own experience, but this is what I hear from women. You know, what girls can learn from their fathers is that that same sense of, oh, I am viewed positively by this male, this really important male in my life. Then you get some self-esteem out of that when you go out and you're meeting men. Mm-hmm. And the absence of that can be really, I imagine, can be very painful. Well, yeah, I think it's too, it's, you know show me how I should be treated mm-hmm. in, in a way, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, sh- show me what it feels like for someone to, for that male figure to, to love me and how to, how should they take care of me or provide for me that type of thing for yeah, sure. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, switching gears from death spiral <laughs> <laughs> to you compare couples therapy to improv to comedy. Is I that- do. To, well, the, to improv in particular. Which is a form of comedy, but it's not that the couple's therapy is a comedy. Occasionally it is, actually. I mean, we we do (laughs) laugh in sessions. It does happen. Could be, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
But no, the, it's the improv part of it because uh, yeah, I, I find that's a really useful way of thinking about it. If you have you you've seen improv or you mm-hmm. ever, yeah. have you ever done it yourself? No, ah, okay, I've never yeah. done it myself. I think I have once or twice. The thing about improv is you have a prompt that sort of establishes the scene, and then there's only one rule that is applied in improv, as I understand it. The one rule is it's always yes and. Whatever somebody throws at you in improv, you never deny it or push it away or insist that it, you know, or or say it's not yes, but it's always yes. And, you know, however ridiculous it is, that's what makes it funny when it works. Something ridiculous comes up and you go with that and then you add something to it. Well, when couples show up for a couples therapy, they're not in any sort of yes and mood. They're in a no damn it mood. Right. Mm-hmm. That whatever they're hearing from the other person is just not working for them. That's why they're not able to work it out themselves. And so they're in no way like that. But the therapist can be in yes and. Again, I'm not talking about, you know, comedically speaking, but mm-hmm. the therapist can hear what they're saying and accept that it's got to be valid on some level. Even if they're saying two opposite things, even if they're disagreeing on the facts, almost always nobody I'm working with is crazy. You know, mm-hmm. almost always they're not nuts They're And almost always I just have to assume they're not evil. You know, every right. once in a great, great, great while I've been doing this for almost, well, over 30 years counting internships. And, you know, how many people have I met that I would say, oh, my God, this person's a sociopath? Very, very, very few. I don't I'm not. There sure. are people who see that all over the place. I don't. I see a lot of pissed off people, but I don't see people who are just fundamentally evil. So granting that is the assumption then there's got to be something valid in what, in what their experience is. And if the therapist's response is to go with that, you know, it's like, wow, let me hear more about that. It invites, eventually invites the couple to get into that yes and stance as well. It's like they can actually start to hear each other. They don't have to agree, but they're saying, oh my God, no wonder. What, you know, what I like to refer to it as, and I hope I'm not violating the, the language standard of your podcast here, I didn't ask you, but I call it the oh shit moment. Um, okay. Yeah. The oh shit moment is when people, and I don't mean oh shit like when you hit the thumb with a hammer. You know that's like oh shit. No, it's not that one. <laughs> it's the oh shit. No wonder. It's that moment. It's like oh my god. Mm. No wonder you feel that way. Oh shit. I hadn't thought of it that way. No wonder I feel this way. I'm not changing how I feel either. But oh shit. I see where you're coming from. Now what do we do? You know, I call it the oh shit moment rather than an aha moment. Aha moments are lovely. It's like, ah, we've got a solution. It's great. The oh shit moment is is before the aha. It's like, you may not be at aha yet. Oh shit, it's not comfortable. It's like, oh boy, what do we do now? Because I see why you're feeling that way. And I see why I'm feeling this way. And those don't work together, do they? So what Mm -hmm. can we do? And often what will emerge then is stuff they'd never thought of. It's like, oh, oh, (laughs) you know, I, I can work with you now, you know, or sometimes what emerges from that is, oh, geez, we have to split up, don't we? You know, the, right. the classic example of that one is, you know, somebody figures out they're gay in a heterosexual relationship. Oh, shit. No wonder. Nobody's broken here, but this is why it's not working. But this is why it's not working. Yeah, there's lots of other oh, shit moments that are much happier. And the result is sort of like, <laughs> oh, we can we can get through this, you know. What what will happen sometimes is somebody thinks something was so important to them, and when they have that experience of an intimate connection, they realize 
it's not nearly as important as I thought. Actually, let's do it your way. And I would imagine, I mean, sometimes it might be hard to get people there to see the other side of that person, you know, like to to actually hear that. Oh, yeah. Initially, that's usually the case. That's what they're doing with a therapist. Initially, it's very difficult. Uh, but that's that's the, the connection with improv is, you know, the first session actually is very structured. I, I wrote about that in the book, too. I give a, a, a sort of a roadmap to my first session. But after the first session, there's very little structure that I impose. I follow the meaning where it goes. That's where it's much more like improv at that point. You know, when I used to accept insurance, it was always funny when they would ask for a treatment plan. And I would realize, well, the thing about couples therapy is it's not treatment and it's not planned. Other than that, no problem giving you a treatment plan, you know, because <laughs> it isn't treatment. It's not like you're treating a disorder. You know, it's not right. like treating diabetes or treating appendicitis, mm-hmm. you know, like doctors, you I hope, you know, they have a decision tree and I'm glad they do. And they know what they're doing and they they diagnose the problem and then they can work to fix it based on what the problem is. That is rarely how couples therapy. Right, right. You know John Gottman's work. Does that does that ring a bell? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We may have touched on that actually, in there when we were talking, I don't remember. But anyway, one of the things he noted in his research, he did this longitudinal research. You know, studied couples for decades in some cases, and he found that this the list of problems, the list of problematic differences that they gave him as newlyweds, um, what was it? Two thirds of them were still there twenty years later. In other words, it's not that the problems go away. The couples that do mm-hmm. well still have those problems, but they handle them gracefully. They do it differently. They do it differently. Yeah. And and it's it is about that sense. I don't know if Gottman uses the word, but I use the word gracefully. You know, they they do it yeah. with grace. It's like, oh, isn't that something? This is one of those differences. We know we have it. You know, you're that way and I'm this way, and it's fine. And we've mm-hmm. we know how to get around this, and it'll be a little annoying, but we'll be okay. That's yeah. <laughs> another a few months ago, my wife and I did a podcast where I announced not too grandiosely, of course, I announced that I have the the magic key that unlocks all relationship problems. The magic oh, key. Oh, yes. okay. Yeah, no problem. You know, this this will end all of our work because <laughs> all I have to do is say this phrase. Everybody else can say, well, I guess we're done then, you know. The magic key that unlocks all relationship problems is the ability to be mildly annoyed. That's the, the one. Ability the ability to be, to be mildly annoyed. annoyed. Yeah. Because what that means mm-hmm. is if and you know, it sounds rather silly to call it the magic key. But it is in a sense, because if you're mildly annoyed, what that means is it's overridden by goodwill. It's like, yeah, it's, I'm sure I'm annoying to my wife on occasion. I know I'm annoying to my wife on occasion. She's not almost right. never annoying to me, but I'm annoying to her. And, but she's sweet about it. You know, she said, yeah, she knows. She's not denying it. She'll, you know, she'll complain about it if she needs to. But it just doesn't mm-hmm. seem to rise to the level of hating my guts. You know, it's just, right. it's sort of funny at this point. And I try to be nice about it and I try to, you know, I try to do what I can. And some uh-huh. of it is just going to be there. You know, it's just who the two of us are and that's going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. You, they're not always going to, you're not always going to look at them with, you know, heart, heart shaped glasses mm-hmm. all of the time. And mm-hmm. so everybody's going to have certain things that are going to annoy you, especially when you're in longevity, right? Or you're going for that longevity and yeah, being together. Course. Yeah. 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 I mean, my husband and I both, we joke about it all the time. I mean, he is selfish and I'm clumsy and we know that. and That's okay. <laughs> there you go. And those are perhaps harsh terms. I don't know. But like you, you're laughing about it because you found some, you know, you found some truth. Yeah. In it. But, you know, it's another way of, of um, 
saying the same thing. Those terms, you know, yes, he's selfish and you're clumsy, whatever. They obviously aren't the whole story. They're a funny right. little part of the story. Yes. And and, right. and there's some truth in it, but it's not the whole truth. It's just some truth in it. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, there are times exactly. when you're very graceful and times when he's really generous, right? So, <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, Bruce Traumer, thank you so much for being on Top Self. We appreciate it. Where can people find you? They can find um, my uh, website, brucechalmer.com. And they can also find our podcast website. It's Couples Therapy in Seven Words. And the podcast website is ctin7, that's the number seven, ctin7.com. That's where they can find our podcast that I do with my wife, Judy Alexander. And um, that's either of those places they'll find out. I also do, uh, you know, I do therapy by telehealth. And if you're in jurisdictions where I'm licensed, which currently is Vermont and Florida, I'm I do have Great. some openings for that as well. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for those of you in Vermont or Florida, uh, Bruce can, you know, he can help you get your partner into therapy. <laughs> help you once you get there, right? Uh, indeed. I certainly do offer that. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bruce.